Good morning, listeners. Today, I want to talk about the concept of strategic culture, which is a very important concept in security studies. It's a concept I've taught whole subjects on at both undergraduate and master's levels, and it helps to explain why wars, near wars, uncomfortable peace might be the way they are, why they stay that way and why they might change. And in a period where America and Iran are eyeballing each other and things are looking scarier, where the Chinese are looking more wound up you know, throughout the region, it seems important to give you a way to make sense of the global security environment. I'm here this morning with David. How are you, David? I'm very well, thank you, Tim. That's good to hear. I'm glad that you're doing well in the face of all of the perhaps threats or unease that we're feeling around the world at the moment. Well, I figure that's why today's topic is important because what you need to do is pay attention to when people who understand strategic culture look worried. If they don't look worried, don't worry because they're the ones looking at what's happening institutionally and going, have the institutions bought into the idea? of war coming up. So I think a good place to start is I'll get you to read Jack Snyder's definition Mm. from the 1970s and then unpack it for the listeners so they've got somewhere to begin. So this is Jack Snyder from 1977. Strategic culture can be defined as a set of beliefs, attitudes and norms towards the use of military force, often moulded according to historical experience. Sounds like a really simple but detailed definition, doesn't it? (laughs) Yeah, that's right. And it actually is. And I'll explain the story of how he got to that point of understanding because it really helps make strategic culture make more sense. So after World War II, the Soviets become a nuclear power, we're in the Cold War, and the Americans are constantly trying to make sense of what the Russians will do next. And they consistently do quite badly. So the first thing they go is, well, you know, Surely they behave like us. That didn't work. Hey, they're Soviets. Mm. They're going to be different. Different how? So that didn't help. Then they discovered game theory. And of course, as all people who've studied game theory properly realise, there's competitive game theory or collaborative game theory. Mm. And depending which game theory you use, will preload a certain outcome, meaning game theory is essentially useless. If there's a mathematician who would like to come on and prove that it's not useless, I would be very interested to have that proven. (laughs) So by the early 1970s, the Americans are doing really bad at predicting what the Soviets are going to do next. And Jack Snyder and his team start thinking about this differently. They go, okay, decision makers don't get to be decision makers without having gone through a whole pile of earlier career steps. Mm. So if we start understanding where the Soviet decision-makers come from in terms of education, work experience, relationship to the party, those things we can probably find out. And we can find out what kind of people those institutions value and what kind of decisions those institutions make. Because institutions, by their nature, pick people who fit the institution as it is and can only change at a pace that the entire group of people in the institution are willing to cope with. Mm. So they pick people to fit and they don't change 
faster than the group want. Mm. Suddenly, Jack Snyder and his team start being able to accurately predict what the Soviets are going to do next. Mm-hmm. And this is a huge breakthrough because rather than relying on whiz-bang electronic intelligence or satellite imagery or whatever else, it relies on people thinking about people. So it's that bit of American intelligence that has largely been the worst bit for decades, which is human intelligence. <laughs> you know, human intelligence gets shortened to humint, H-U-M-I-N-T, and humint is normally the worst done bit of intelligence by the US. So for the US to have suddenly got a humint breakthrough was remarkable, but more importantly, spawned a whole area of study, mm. made it out of the cloak and dagger world of intelligence and into the world of security theory. And there were major battles within security theory over strategic culture. And the the famous one is Colin Gray versus Alastair Johnston. And Johnston said, if strategic culture has any value, it has to be able to provide absolute definite answers. Hmm. Colin Gray said, no, strategic culture is a lens. It's a set of tools. It helps bring the world into focus and make it comprehensible. Mm. So can you guess which side of the debate I'm on, knowing me for as long as you now have? <laughs> Whose side of the debate do you think I went with? Uh, the second one? Colin Gray? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> because if you've got an absolute answer, you're either dealing with something simple mm. or you control it or you're a liar. Well, that, that seems like the attitude that David would have. Yeah, yeah. precisely. <laughs> like if you think you can explain it really simply, then something's probably gone horribly wrong. So... What strategic culture is about is saying if we understand the institutions that train security personnel, how they're recruited, how they're trained, how their career progression works, we can then also start to have a better chance of understanding what decision they're more likely to make. Not what decision they will make, Mm. but which decisions are more likely which then puts an extra wild card in that security professionals, whether they be intel, defence force, uniform, civilian, their path of development is quite clear. But in a democracy at the top of security decision-making, we have democratically elected politicians who nearly always now have no security experience and no training in working in that area and no experience of that area and yet they make final decisions. Mm. So we end up what's called the unequal dialogue, that the politicians make the decisions but the security professionals understand the topics being discussed and that there's a huge body of literature in civil-military relations uh, all about the unequal dialogue. And that the ideal situation in a democracy is that the political elite ask the security professionals for unbiased, frank and complete answers and that the professionals give them and then the democratically elected elite choose what they choose and as long as it leads to a lawful order, the security professionals just get on with it. Mm. Could you argue that the the political elite, the democratically elected you know, people, have better human intelligence understanding being in the fields that they're in? 
what you could say is they're better people people. But yeah. Better people persons. Generally would have studied, uh, I mean, law, humanities. Yeah. Okay. Intel world's got a lot of lawyers in it. Mm-hmm. So there's not a lot of gain. Okay. I think part of it is that there's a couple of big differences. The political elite are normally good people people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what if a terrible phrase has got to be a better phrase, but I can't think of it. But they also desperately want to maintain their job. Yes. Yeah. They're not going to take the hard decision if it means their government's going to lose. Well, most won't. They're not as concerned with with the best strategic option as they are for for the country Country as they are for their party. Best political option for their party, yes. The other side of this is what we see is that after World War II, democratic parliaments full of World War II veterans Mm -hmm. rarely went to war. In all the parliaments where there are now less World War II, well, there's none left, and less and less veterans in general, politicians are far more willing to go to war. Mm. So security professionals understand the price of violence, the price of war, the price of dirty tricks in intelligence, and they personally or the people they professionally care about will pay the price with their lives. Mm. The political elite don't send their children away to die. They send other people's children away to die. Mm. So we have a massive disconnection now in the unequal dialogue in Western democracies between a political elite who are largely security illiterate and also have very little personal connection to security. Mm. And security professionals who are more and more a tribe where it becomes multi-generational, where accepting the unequal dialogue is part of life, accepting that you will be told to risk your life, your friends' lives, your children's lives, your friends' children's lives is part of accepting what you do for the sake of national security and major strategic outcomes. Are these, you know, are these military departments not set up though, so that they're not they that they can't be too adversely affected by you know change in government by people that you know. Um... You just tapped into a key point, and that is the government can change, but the institution that created your defence and security leadership hasn't changed, mm. and that's why you can predict what a colonel or a general might do based on how they were recruited, how they were trained, their career progression, what wars they've been through. Intel people are a bit harder because we don't know exactly what they're trained in. Mm. But we can look at the experience of a country in relation to where does it fit in the world, how's it doing in terms of getting along with its neighbours. Have there been any big intelligence scandals? Does it seem to be ahead of the curve on seeing threats coming and informing politicians? Now, here in Australia, like in the US, since 9-11, we've had intel officers leave the intel community and become politicians to go stop doing stupid things (laughs) because they're realising that they can try and speak truth but if the political elite keep speaking to each other in an echo chamber, we'll do dopey things like invade Iraq. Mm. We'll do dopey things like going into Afghanistan without being prepared for the long haul or having any clear conception of what victory might be. Mm. So there's times where at the end of careers, security professionals have to go into parliament 
in order to speak truth. So the example in Australia at the moment is we've just had Peter Lay, former senior army general, now become a Liberal senator. Mm. We've got Senator Rex Patrick, former submarine officer, you know, Nick Xenophon's replacement in the Senate. Mm. And we desperately need these people there because Parliament as a whole knows so little about security. And this is not to say that once you're in, you don't get your briefing. But a briefing doesn't help you understand the institutions you're dealing with within security and how the institutions make decisions. If you think, you know, national politics are complicated, try taking that and then amplifying it by, you know, or putting it to the power of however many nations you're dealing with in yeah. in, in defence. Right? I'll give you yeah. a wonderful example. So think about before US presidents become president, how they talk about national security as if they have a plan. Mm. Once they've won the election but they've not been through the inauguration yet, they start having their briefings. Go back and look at footage of Obama the day he wins and then after his first briefing. Mm. Go back and look at footage of Bush Jr. the day after he wins and then after his first briefing. Trump's the only one from what side of people have told me doesn't look any less helder-skelder. <laughs> the briefings didn't really have any impact but the general consensus that people have given to me is that you can see the difference once they've had their first you are going to be the president briefing mm. you now know the reality of international security you know how close we are to the line of shit going down and ending badly mm. we are and that for the capable ones they realise whatever they thought before is only a half truth would you propose a separate system? I'm just thinking now that it, it almost doesn't seem fair to put, you know, leaders of countries, giving them all these extra responsibilities like they now have, or, they've, you know, you've got to attend UN, NATO, you know, all these different kind of conferences and, and meetings like, you know, uh, the global warming, what's the... Oh, things like the huge conference in, in Paris a few years ago yes. and the follow-ups from that. Mm. Well, I... I suppose the thing to think about here is we want civilian control. Mm. Do mm. we? I, I'm guessing yes, I do. <laughs> as, as much as I admire and respect people in the security world, what I admire and respect to a large degree about them in the Western world is the way they accept the unequal dialogue. Mm. They accept that they do the job but that they don't rule. Well, I've immediately come up with a good counter-argument to what I just proposed, that you know, that several civilizations have tried that before. You had the shogunate and the Precisely. Uh, emperor, I suppose, in Japan where effectively the military just took over yes. the, the, the political side of the country because, of course, that's where all the power is. So. Yes. So we have interesting cases, say, in America. We, we'll just stay you know, after World War Two. So mm. we have General Eisenhower becoming a two-term president who at the end of his second term as president still had 80% approval. Mm. Who, if the constitution hadn't been altered so they can't have more than two terms, Nixon and Kennedy wouldn't have had a hope. Mm. Eisenhower would have got a third term. Wow. Now, at the time he was president, was loved, in the years after, was viewed as we well, did bugger all. If we look later, he behaved as president like he behaved as a general. He got talented people told them what their responsibilities were and said, go away and report back in a month. <laughs> he trusted subordinates, mm. minimal micromanagement. But if we also look at the dastardly shit that Eisenhower authorised in South America 
and the ways he pushed us to the brink of nuclear war with the Soviet Union. He was brilliant for America, but you know, helped devastate South America further and get us very close to the brink of nuclear war. Mm. Now, I don't think that's because he was a general and he was such a disciplined human being. You know, this is the guy that warned us about the military-industrial complex mm-hmm. at the end of his presidential term. And in the first draft of the speech, it wasn't the military-industrial complex. It was the military-industrial-congressional complex. Mm. He only took Congress out at the last minute because he figured he wanted to provide a warning, not a slap to the head. So once again, this very refined response to incredible power. And what he saw was, for again, most of the listeners probably haven't ever listened to his farewell address. What he said is... We need to be really careful of there being too many connections between industry, defence and Congress where a group of people in all three decide we're just going to run America to suit us, Mm. which is essentially what has happened ever since. (laughs) (laughs) The defence industry is huge, that Congress need their money and want their influence and that defence is a massive employer and a massive way to get and spend money. So there's a revolving door between Congress, senior defence, civilian and uniform and defence industry Mm. and that there isn't enough oversight and it destabilises the unequal dialogue by putting an extra player in that is neither those people in the official security world or the democratically elected elite. It is meaning that there's a third group between industry and lobbyists manipulating both sides. Mm. and being the ones who normally win because their kids definitely don't go to war (laughs) and they don't have to worry about political office. Mm. So they win either way. Interesting. So gave the example of Eisenhower earlier. Now let's look a bit later on here. Mm -hmm. You know, General David Petraeus, the quote-unquote father of counterinsurgency in Iraq, better at press than Bush Jr. or Obama, his press team were that good, he could normally get on TV on a Sunday morning faster than the president. Part of the reason this happened, from what we know, is that Bush Jr., when he didn't really understand Iraq and Afghanistan, said to the senior generals, win these wars, but didn't define what winning looked like and wouldn't define what winning looked like, which meant the generals got used to going, well, We've been told to win. Let's win. Mm. With the limited resources we have, let's win. So when Obama came in, Obama essentially finds he's at war with Petraeus over public messaging because Obama initially didn't define what winning meant either. (laughs) And Bob Woodward makes a huge point in his book Obama's Wars about Obama getting incredibly frustrated with Dave Petraeus and Stan McChrystal. Why won't you guys listen And, you know, what's come out from multiple sources is Petraeus and McChrystal said, well, you give us clear orders and that's exactly what we'll implement. So Obama, in a fit of frustration, goes and write out a seven-page memo of what winning in Iraq and Afghanistan would mean. Mm -hmm. And Woodward makes out that this is this shocking thing that a president had to do this. And it's shocking that, you know, the, the generals had been running the war until then. The men at Petraeus and McChrystal were handed that document 
they got on with doing what they'd been asked because it was a lawful order. Mm-hmm. The problem had been the political elite wasn't upholding its end of the unequal dialogue. Mm-hmm. Mm. So Petraeus leaves the army, moves on and becomes head of the CIA, is being talked about as a potential presidential candidate for either party. They're both so desperate to get him. <laughs> and then sleeps with his biographer and gives secrets away oh. and temporarily zaps his career. <laughs> Otherwise we would probably have President Petraeus by now. So there's, there's a, a good TED talk I think that we'll link in the description by Murphy Danahy and in that talk he mentions that winning in Afghanistan isn't is like an argue like is a is a contentious topic like what mm. what was winning what did winning look like mm. you know by his measure you know that he you know they didn't mm. uh, the US didn't win so it seems that that even even though they're following orders that there is a, a discordance between uh, what the military would have thought was winning and what the the political elite or you know the democratically elected representatives or whatever would have thought was winning. Absolutely. So there's a, a sort of twofold thing in this. That one, you need clear strategic guidance from government. Mm. Otherwise, you don't know why you're at war. Mm. So. Murphy Dan, he's an interesting guy. He had the guts to stand up at West Point and say, US hasn't won a war since World War II and we've got a manpower slash personnel crisis and we're wasting talent. Mm. Brave dude. And <laughs> in the video, and we'll put it in the, you know, the, the links, mm. you hear how scared he is talking about this. He's one nervous dude because <laughs> yeah. he's talking to the big dogs mm. and he's telling the big dogs essentially that they've been pissing on their own feet. Yes. But he brings up a fascinating point and it's very much a point of understanding strategic culture and that is that modern Western militaries privilege cognitive conservatism mm. which leads to incredibly good tactical ability because mm-hmm. tactics change a bit but they're small and they're for small ops and they're for the small jobs you do, for little wars, what they mean is you get it tactically right, you can win every battle, mm. which is exactly what the Americans did in Iraq and Afghanistan. Incredibly capable, cognitively conservative officers leading cognitively conservative junior officers all with incredible technical ability, mm. great kit and highly motivated troops kicked ass in every battle. Mm-hmm. But winning battles doesn't win wars. You can tactically win a battle, but strategically... Do you understand what it would be to win, to get the other side to comply and stop fighting back or to agree with you? Mm. That strategy is very different. So what you see within militaries is in specialist areas, cognitively adaptive people, there's some space made for them. So special operations forces are far more cognitively adaptive than conventional parts of militaries. Mm. But also your career progression is likely to stall at colonel because it's such a small part of the military. Mm. So your most adaptable people leave at 40 and never run the organisation. That's assuming they're good enough and they want to be in special operations. Otherwise, they leave much earlier. Mm. So if you look at the proportion of young defence officers who do their minimum stint about nine years and then leave, they're normally the most cognitively adaptive people in the organisation. Mm-hmm. And Murphy Danahy's point is a really interesting one, that if historically promotion came from being good at tactical level operations and that historically 
bigger operations were still tactical, just on a bigger scale. You know, World War II was armies versus armies. It was essentially tactics. Mm. And the strategy was destroy Germany, destroy Japan, destroy their ability and will to fight until they comply and yield. Mm. was not that simple anymore. No. You don't fight anyone to a standstill. Populations don't give up. People don't put their weapons down. So using tactics on a grand scale doesn't work anymore. And yet, because the institution recruits for cognitive conservatism to be good at tactics, and it lets a few cognitively adaptive people in because it realises their benefit, but it doesn't promote them, it doesn't value them, it doesn't treat them as being interesting and useful. So by the time they would be useful at senior levels for doing big strategy, they've already left. Mm. Or they're not listened to because they're the odd ones out. So the perfect example, it's another thing we'll probably link today, is Sean McFate's book, Goliath. Mm -hmm. Sean McFate was a young paratrooper and in the mid-90s had just done a massive exercise and found himself at the end of the exercise talking to Colonel Petraeus, later to become General Petraeus, who we were just talking about. Mm -hmm. And they were talking about the exercise they'd just done and how pointless it was that it was assuming conventional warfare as understood in terms of World War II. Mm. And McFate could kind of see, yes, they'd just done a very good job of the exercise, but what was the point of the exercise? Who would ever want to fight America conventionally? And Dave Petraeus turned around to McFate and said, leave the army and go and do a PhD. And for McFate, a young officer doing well, this was pretty crushing. Yeah, no kidding. And he turned around and went, so why? And he goes, well, we're not going to fight conventional wars. In the near future, we're going to fight something else. And if you stay on the inside, you won't get trained for them. But if you go away and learn about the alternatives, learn about different ways to think about war, you'll be available to help us when we need you. It's interesting, isn't it, though, that between those last two examples of uh, Murphy Danahy and Sean McFade, Sean McFade, that you've highlighted that basically people are not being trained to deal with the new kinds of war. No, because and institutions move slowly. And this mm. is the point of jumping back to Jack Snyder. Mm. The institution can only change slowly and when it's ready. Okay, audience, to understand, most military training is to help you survive the worst day of your life mm -hmm. so that you and everyone around you will function effectively on the worst days of your life to habituate that tactical consistency that gets the job done even when everything's going wrong. Mm. That's its power. It's not for best days of your life. It's for when you're stressed out of your brain, sleep-deprived, hungry, on the verge of being dehydrated and need to make split-second decisions that will keep a group of people alive or kill them. Mm. And then there's an, an entire other wing which, you know, Dan, he would identify as maybe more like the innovative yeah. stream. But he, he kind of outrightly says it's not something that you can train or it's not a problem that you should approach by training. Yeah, Danahy takes the thing that cognitively conservative or cognitively adaptive, most people show those characteristics by the time they're teenagers yeah. and aren't going to change. Yeah. And from training enough people, this is the one thing I'll disagree with Danahy on, is I can certainly train someone into be more cognitively adaptive than they were at the beginning of a week of training. Mm. 
I'm not saying they will be a majority cognitively adaptive person at the end of a week training with me, but they will be more cognitively adaptive than they were. Well, I, it, it had me thinking, you know, I, I've watched this video several times. It's part of, part of the complex problem solving course. It reminded me of, of two discussions that we've already had, with one being intentional adaptability with Penny Lacasso some weeks ago and uh, also with our conversation with Jess about whether people are... Anti-fragility. Anti-fragile and whether that can be trained. Mm. Um, and that's kind of what that argument felt like to me. Those, those concepts seem not the same, but they're mm. you know, similar in terms of um, mm. how, how, you, how we conceptualize them. So um, it was interesting to hear him say that it's not something you can be trained. People are kind of predisposed to being... Mm. Uh, you know, e- e- either stream and we should just deal with that and and but he also the nice thing about what he said was that you know cognitively uh, adaptable and cognitively conservative. conservative people have strengths in in different areas yes, right? cognitively so, adaptive people are strategically good they're mm. good at big picture and changing circumstances cognitively conservative are good at tactics and consistency Mm. And, and getting the details right. And such a common narrative that we talk about in, in business, in, in management, yeah. in all kinds of uh, contexts. And, and this is the thing to put it in perspective, listeners. There's a whole body of literature on corporate psychology mm. that is all very interesting. But the reason I find strategic culture more interesting is because the ideas from strategic culture get taught under immense pressure and get used under immense pressure and either work or break under immense pressure. So whereas corporate psychologists can investigate for decades and will never see what pressure would do to their ideas, every idea within strategic culture has been tested, held or broken in warfare. But also how much is it going to impact you knowing how the CEO of a toner company operates as opposed to someone yeah. that's making a difference? <laughs> and, and for the classic example, to put this in context, strategic culture is seen as so valuable a skill set mm. that when US Special Forces officers leave the military in their mid-30s, go do an accelerated MBA and then go to the corporate world in the US, their pay normally doubles mm. because they're so highly valuable. Mm. Because the worst day for civilians, for them, is like, oh, shrug. Yeah. They, yeah. they barely blink. So their ability to deal with stress infinitely higher what they call difficult is you know, an entirely different magnitude of scale. And in the main, the corporate world is not uh, cognitively adaptive either because most institutions pick people who fit what is. It's a rare company that can imagine how different they want to be two years from now and pick people for two years from now. Mm. It's why transformations in corporations are so painful. So you can look at all these issues in a similar way in the corporate world. It's just it's all slower and fuzzier. Mm. And Mm. because I've studied and taught security for so long and I care about it so much, national security is so damn important. Mm. If a nation knows how to position itself to be secure and make life as safe as possible for its citizens, our lives are so much easier. Mm. And we don't waste treasure and we don't waste blood. If we get these things wrong, we waste a lot of blood and a lot of treasure. It seems, I, I think it's, it's worth noting. It's something that I think a lot of people in Australia perhaps take for granted. It's not something that we hear a, a lot about. It, re, it really isn't, you know? No, we just assume that we slipstream behind the US and that, that frightens us a bit, but we don't take responsibility for understanding it. Yeah. Whereas each time I teach strategic cultures at master's or undergrad level, 
the first and last thing I say in the course is the reason for this course is so that at the end of it, you could be a member of the audience on Q&A, which is a discussion program on the ABC for listeners, where they talk to politicians and experts. And my argument is that at the end of the course, you could go on Q&A and ask a defence minister a question they couldn't answer and hold democratic power to account to run the unequal dialogue with security better and to try and make national security a better debate about it. Mm. That's the point of the subject. So part of the thing here is politicians outwardly look cognitively adaptive because they want to adapt and evolve and have power and win. Mm. And yet by signing up to an ideology... It normally means that they're adaptive in the direction they like, Mm. but in a narrowly defined way. So when we talked about the election and said, you know, quality worlds, either conservative or progressive, will define the decision making. Mm. So in the main, they're not as adaptive as they need to be to do national strategy well, because they need national strategy to fit their ideology. So the Labor Party doesn't want to see China as a potential danger because that doesn't suit their progressive worldview that all people on the left want to be warm, fuzzy Democrats. <laughs> uh, I was just thinking about asking you this. You know, Before I knew you, David, I was... I don't want to say anti-military, nor do I want to say pacifist. Um, I don't want to offend listeners out there, but I'm not, na- I'm not naive as to say that some situations don't require violence. Violence is never the answer. Until Mm. it's the only answer. Mm. It's a wonderful video by a guy called Tim, and I can't remember his surname. He's a martial arts guy who started teaching self-defense that actually works. Mm. And it's just simple learning teacher students. Violence is never the answer until it's the only answer. Mm. It is scary how how many situations, international or local, when violence becomes the only answer. Entire nations are pushed to that point. Mm. As you would notice in somewhere, somewhere like Sudan, I'm sure. Yeah, or South Sudan or yeah. Syria or you know, Central African Republic or mm. Nigeria or a zillion other places where the problems are so big that you can only reason with reasonable people. Mm. If what you're dealing is with highly motivated, ideological and willing to sacrifice their lives and yours to get their version of utopia, mm. kill them or move on. <laughs> Very uncomfortable reality. Mm. Well, my my impression of of the military was from doing cadets for about ten months mm. when I was thirteen, and, and and in no way mentally prepared for what I wanted to do. My expectations were discordant with what I received from that experience. Mm. So they would have been trying to get you to just learn basic things in repetition and stop thinking outside the line because you're the bottom of the food chain yeah and you just need to follow orders which terrible thing to do to 13 year olds possibly but also just <laughs> i i have problems with authority yeah. to begin with so <laughs> yeah i am totally unsupportive of cadets mm. as a system because it prepares people for a world that is now gone where you can be the bottom of the food chain and be that useless Mm. so early 1990s commandant of the u.s marine corps general krulak realizes conventional wars gone even if the politicians haven't got the memo even if the institution of the military as the whole hasn't got the memo Mm. he is head of the marine corps is in the position where at least his small world the marine corps he can start changing for an alternate future Mm -hmm. and he wrote a famous article called the three block war where he describes a situation in the beginning of it that looks an awful lot like what led up to Black Hawk Down. 
and that is a 22-year-old corporal and his squad, and it could be her squad in a few years' time, the way things are going, mm. in changing women on the front line. A 22-year-old corporal and their squad are having to go between handing out aid, doing peacekeeping and possibly having to enter into combat all within three city blocks, mm. all within an hour. Mm. And the 22-year-old is going to have to make the decision that the dumb cadet would be no use in that situation. Yeah. That you know, we're asking so much of this 22-year-old corporal, we have to invest in them to the greatest extent. So it's the beginning of the institution of the US military putting a document out that wasn't an official document but became official doctrine in the Marine Corps of training everyone for the three-block war, that every Marine had to be able to go from aid delivery to basically policing slash peacekeeping or combat within three city blocks within an hour mm. and change gear and know how to behave in each gear and decide when to change gear and do it well and then come back down you know, to a less violent gear when necessary. What I would hope is that something like you've just explained will change the perspective of what the military is for our listeners. I'm, I'm optimistic about even the impact being that some of our listeners may even consider a career in the military because of the, the faff that you see on the you know marketing ads they have on television where you mm. challenge yourself to do X, Y, Z aren't necessarily convincing. But in actual fact, what they say in, in terms of having a challenging career and challenging yourself and you know, um, achieving a lot more than just crawling through the mud with a rifle and you know mm. above your head kind of thing mm. is true. Well, particularly when we're going into an environment of unsecured space. Mm. More and more of the world is unsecured space. Most people like or don't like, most people use the phrase failed states. I hate it because it assumes the state was functioning in the first place. <laughs> Most places actually called failed now have never functioned, mm. ever. Mm. They've been under the heel of an imperial boot or someone's boot and then the heel came off and mayhem incurred. Mm. Oh, mayhem occurred. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not a failed state. That's unsecured space. Mm-hmm. And in a world where there is more and more unsecured space, militaries are some of the only people you can send because they can look after themselves and they've signed up to take risks to get good outcomes. Mm. So the reality is in a lot of places it is only going to be military personnel or private security contractors, which is a whole other issue, Mm. who you're going to be able to send because of their capacity to look after themselves, do violence if necessary. Mm. And not an ideal world that's come to that, but better that they're there trying to help than no one's trying to help. Mm. So... We're in this situation now where we have a political elite who even if they – we can't necessarily give them the briefings you know, before they start their career on security about what the real security situation is. But they need a second even more important briefing and that is on the unequal dialogue. Ask for full and frank information from your security sector mm. and then – make a decision and give a lawful order and understand that national security policy is massively important. Also understand that security institutions are by their nature conservative because what they do is designed to be done under stress on worst days of your life. Mm. You need to habituate behaviours to last on bad days. 
so that if you want your security institutions to do different things, it takes time. Murphy Danahy's point, there need to be two streams to become you know, an army officer in America, one tactical, one strategic. Mm. Don't waste the strategic person. Find a different way for them to be promoted so they're ready to think about the complex grey situations with 20 variables and no easy way to win where tactics won't get the job done, mm. where you go, well, we could win every battle but we're not going to win the war. How would we strategically try to win the war? Would winning the war mean fighting less battles? Mm. Leaving people like that in, and you know, part of the reason I put Sean McFate's stuff in the notes for this week, his new book, Goliath, uh, Why the West Doesn't Win Wars. And what to do about it. Yeah. Part of the reason I put that in this week is because Sean McFate makes the point that, all right, militaries are trained to work within slowly evolving institutions. You know, defence personnel are trained to work within gradually evolving at the fastest institutions. Mm. But civilians get almost no strategic training or security training at all to do better national policy. Mm. So you can't rely on the security sector to provide the innovative idea when how they're recruited and trained leans towards the conservative side and you can't rely on the democratic elite or their civilian trained advisors to know what to do next because they haven't had enough strategic or security training. So neither group is well equipped to deal with the complexity of a changing security environment, i.e. why the world looks so scary at the moment. Because mm. militaries know how to prepare for war but also know what it costs. And in the main, people in uniform are the last people to want a war because they know how many lives they care about will be lost. Politicians don't really understand national security, don't really understand the unequal dialogue and don't have a clear and fast way to learn these things. Mm. So what I would argue at the moment is citizens need to understand security more to ask better questions so that politicians have to get better answers and there should be something in place so that politicians can very quickly understand more about national security than they understood when they started their career and more quickly. You know, we don't want to have to rely on people like Rex Patrick and Peter Lay changing from being in uniform to being politicians in their, you know, their next career in their lives to try and inform you know, Parliament as to how to make sense of national security. Mm. It's an unreasonable expectation to put on them. Now, I'm not sure if I've answered any of the questions I set out to answer at the beginning of this, but I've certainly talked a lot. Oh, apologies. Well, is there anything you would like to add? We can have a non sequitur. Okay, let's have a practical example of making sense of strategic culture and applying it maybe as a way to bring this to an end. Mm -hmm. Let's take Iran and the US. We have a US military that has since 9-11 been busy fighting and not winning unconventional wars. It's won every battle, but it couldn't win the wars. Mm. Now, I don't want to diminish the efforts of anyone in uniform who fought and won battles, but they didn't win the wars. We have an American political elite whose you know, families, children, very few serve, who don't really understand what it takes to achieve national security or what kind of strategies are necessary to win wars. Mm. On the Iranian side... We have two halves of the Iranian military, the conventional Iranian military who 
are technically competent but don't have great kit. And then we have the Revolutionary Guard who are highly motivated, have better kit and have been running dirty tricks, terrorism, insurgency campaigns all over the Middle East and are hard, smart, adaptive, scary dudes. On top of them, you have a religious elite that are highly motivated, willing to sacrifice, Mm -hmm. and willing to sacrifice both groups of their military. Mm. So in institutional terms, what you have in the US-Iran tension at the moment, and as an American military that are technically good to go, could win the battle, but won't necessarily understand how to win the war, Mm. and an Iranian military that are used to putting their lives on the line and will play with dastardly dirty tricks that the Americans haven't even thought up yet because they know they can't win the stand-up battle, but they'll find a hundred other ways to eat away at the Americans, Mm. to chip away at them. So are we likely to see a conventional war? Is it a possibility? Well, it's possible, but in strategic cultures terms, it's not probable Mm. because the Americans will want a stand-up war of nation-state versus nation-state, conventional military versus conventional military because it's what they understand Mm. and it's the thing they know how to win. Iran won't want a nation-state versus nation-state, conventional military versus conventional military, because they know they'll lose. They'd rather have what Sean McFate would call a shadow war and chip away at the Americans and their influence in a hundred small ways, making the Americans look weak. Mm. So as much as this is frightening, they want different things, they're good at different things, and unless there's a mistake we're unlikely to get a conventional war and even if we get a conventional war, it will be very costly Mm. but it shouldn't go any further and it won't be decisive. The reality is all the Iranians have known since Mm. the 1950s is the world screwing them over and doing them harm. Mm. This idea that the Americans have, and again it's part of their political elite's strategic culture, and your political strategic culture is different to security strategic culture, the American political elite believes the world wants to be like it, Mm. that everyone wants to drink the Kool-Aid. It believes the Iranian youth, you know, want to ride skateboards and wear tight jeans. Mm. Probably not. Mm. Iran has too much history through the Persian Empire of having its own identity, of being its own civilization. Mm-hmm. Why would it want to be like anyone else? Mm. And where the Americans think, oh, it's just, you know, um, you know, the religious authorities in control of Iran. It's just the Revolutionary Guard. Now it's a population with a lot of pride in who they are. And again, the conventional war, the Americans can win some battles. Mm. But if it was impossible to make the Iraqi and Afghan population abide by American demands, try playing with the Iranians. Mm who have as many decades of experience of violence and deprivation as the Afghan population does, but who are much more highly educated and much more socially connected. Mm. Not a population you want to mess with. Mm. So for our listeners to whom it should be abundantly clear how important strategic culture is and how important it is to pay attention to things on the international relations environment, what would you recommend, aside from, you know, uh, reading... Oh, Sean McFate's Sean book, McFate. Goliath. Sean McFate's book, Goliath, is a great place to start because it shows 
why the West behaves the way it does and why it doesn't win wars anymore mm. and why we're the ones that need to change. Mm. Because the rest of the world knows it can't beat the West in stand-up wars. Mm. So it will avoid stand-up wars. So, yeah, and then what would, would we also recommend that they pay attention to what Al Jazeera? Like, what's the... Really, there's probably not a news source that explains security well consistently. There's very specialised security press. Mm. I suppose the thing I'd say is don't look at the news mm. doing the shock and horror. Investigate the countries and organisations they're talking about. Mm. Understand how the actors were trained, what the actors know, how the actors have been conditioned to behave. Because it's only through understanding why security institutions trust you, train you, and let you out in command mm. that you can make sense of what might happen next. And yeah, going back to the Colin McGinn thing, strategic culture doesn't tell you what's going to happen next, but it certainly helps you understand what's likely. Mm. And if you start looking at mismatches like the US and Iran, what you see is it's possible it could turn into conventional war, but it's not probable. What's probable is the Americans will sabre-rattle about conventional war because it's what they know. But what's more likely is the Iranians finding a hundred ways to chip away at the Americans and make them look weak, mm. which will aggravate the Americans even further, but no worse than has happened since 9-11 with Iraq and Afghanistan. You know, the Americans have devastated two countries without achieving a victory. Mm. Absolutely incredible. I suppose the other thing, listeners, you could do if you're interested is the other podcast that Tim and I are involved in, Strategicon, S-T-R-A-T-E-G-I-K-O-N, with Dr. John Bruni. We don't often talk about the philosophical side of war like uh, strategic culture, but we're always touching on things that will help you understand international security a bit better. So maybe come and have a listen to Tim and I in a different context. <laughs> And if in doubt, send questions you know, to both podcasts and we'll address those questions in different ways on both podcasts. Mm. All right, David. Well, thank you very much for talking to us today. It's been really enlightening, I'm sure. I mean, and for someone who was already knew what we were going to talk about, and I still find myself learning. So, oh, Good. I'm glad it was interesting because it's one of those things I find fascinating and see the importance, but never entirely sure it is fascinating and then I can get other people to realise its importance. Whether or not we encourage other people, uh, every every one of our listeners to, you know, be be more interested in this is is probably a different debate. But what I think you have demonstrated to probably the best of uh, anyone's ability is that it is important. Yeah, and so. if you can just walk away going, strategic culture is important, mm. and you need to make sense out of international security through strategic culture, mm. then if I can achieve that much, it was a good day. Yeah, absolutely. Right, well, thank you, David. Have a good rest of your day. Thank you, Tim. Hello, listeners. If you're enjoying our podcast, please subscribe and like our Facebook page. Search for Blind Insights with David Olney. Also, don't forget that we have merchandise. Thank you to the Ozcast Network. Peace out. Listener.